That's an important promise, an important song. We think about what that really means. Bringing glory to the Lord all my days. It's a worthwhile desire of our hearts. I want to begin this morning <clears throat> by sharing a prayer from partners in Ukraine. It's a prayer for Ukraine, from missionaries serving there. And I'm just going to pray the prayer. And um, let's just close our eyes and pray along. Dear Jesus, I rest in your constant intercession before your Father's throne. I come to this place in you. And now the tears and feelings can come. My heart can groan again. The worst is yet to come, Lord, if you do not stop it. But, oh God, please, no peace where there is no peace. I don't ask only for peace, but for peace with righteousness and truth. God, for the suffering, warm them. Fill them with food. Give them water, toilets, communication with their loved ones, the gospel, hope in you. I pray particularly today for the leaders of China. Terrify their hearts about agreements with President Putin. Motivate them to turn their backs on him. Don't give President Putin any hope that they can sustain his economy. I don't know more what to ask. You know what to do. For the thousands of prayers you have so specifically answered, I humbly thank you. So many, we don't deserve your mercy. Yet, without your mercy, we will be obliterated. God, if this is an attack on the spiritual freedom and the enormous missionary work of Ukraine, we hide and stand in Jesus to pray against any victory of this evil intention. Give us freedom again and maturity to bear it responsibly and sacrificially. Disable the convoys in simple and effective ways without loss of life. May soldiers surrender in mass. Keep the planes down. Glue the missiles to their launch pads. Oh God, give us a good end, quick end today. Turn Putin's heart from this hardness or use it to lead him on the path to defeat. Thank you. Thank you that you love me. I love you too. Amen. There's a promise, a much beloved promise in the scriptures on the heels of that prayer that I'm sure many of you or most of you have either used or know for I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. It's an awesome promise. But it needs context. 
Because when you throw this, if you just throw this promise in the middle of Ukraine today, it feels hollow. Where is God in his good plans for us not to harm us? To give us a future, hope, prosperity. Unfortunately, the NIV led to misuse, I think, of this promise by translating the word shalom into prosperity, particularly in a culture like ours where we are so materialistically minded. The people have grabbed hold of this promise and thought it was some sort of promise of God to bring material prosperity. Shalom is peace. Now, yes, it can mean prosperity, but it means prosperity of soul, prosperity of life, well-being, welfare. The context of this is found in Jeremiah chapter 29, or the, psalm, or the promise is found in Jeremiah 29. I invite you to turn there with me. The context, of course, is the people of God have been hauled away to an evil nation called Babylon. They are now in captivity, now in exile. In fact, it's not too hard for us to know that because in the opening salvo of this chapter, it says this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles to the priests and prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is promise, the context of this promise is a people lifted out of their country, dragged out of their country, and placed in a hostile land, in exile. And this promise grows out of that. Now, Jeremiah is actually the second longest Old Testament book after the Psalms. Jeremiah is writing at the time of King Josiah, the, near the midway point and after Jeremiah, uh, Josiah. Josiah was the good king who sought to reform things, sought to bring God's people to their senses in in the day because they had turned to idols and had forgotten God and were disobeying God and they were warned over and over again, if, this, if you do this, you're gonna go into exile, you're gonna go into captivity. But they kept disregarding and the, even the reforms of Josiah could not change things. It's in that time period, 609 BC to 586 and that range of time where Jeremiah is raised up by the Lord to preach and is warned by the Lord that his preaching would not always be met with standing ovations. In fact, Jeremiah preached most of his time pushing lots of unpopular buttons because he was challenging God's people to turn from their ways. In fact, at the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah, there's a picture written for us there of the circumstances of the moment. In uh, verses 
14 of Jeremiah 1, it says, The Lord said to me, From the north, disaster will be poured on the, out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. Get yourself ready. I want to quickly state something that I, I want to make certain that we don't make this application today on Ukraine. Because I have a very different perspective of what's going on there than simply greed or whatever. I believe it's a spiritual war. God is doing so much work in Ukraine. They're a major missionary sending nation in the world, in that part of the world. I believe that this is a spiritual battle first and foremost. So I'm not making an application to Ukraine at all today. I am going to make an application to Canada though. Because if we don't wake up, we're being warned, we're in exile. The New Testament church is in exile. Since Christ left and ascended to the Father and left us in this world, which is not our home, we are strangers and aliens. We're a holy nation within a nation. We have a sovereignty association with Canada. We are exiles of a postmodern and post-truth secular world. A a world that's doing everything, a, a, a country, I'm going to keep it here, a country that is, has turned its back on God, is increasingly turning its back on God towards evolutionism, materialism, relativism, human, humanistic. We're resident aliens. Our nation is the church. Our charter is the scriptures. Our home is the local body. That's that's why we feel so at home this morning to be together. Because we're at home when we're together. And we are in transit together. Just like they were in Babylon. And the big question that sort of jumps out of the text is, can the God of the universe engage in his mission with his people in any and every setting? Or does he need a specific cultural context? Like a theocracy or something like it? Like what Israel had? In other words, can God help Israel in Babylon? That's the question. Or was Yahweh just a God of place, like the local gods of all the other nations? What we learn about exile is that good circumstances and surroundings are 
nice to have. And those that are bad are never hindrances to our relationship with God. But when we are in exile, we have to learn to adapt to our relationship with God in different ways. And that's exactly what the context is here. So if we can settle that we are in exile, then we have some instructions to receive from this text. Before we even think of engaging in that promise, there are some things that we need to do that are the same as they needed to do here. So if your Bibles are open to Jeremiah 29, we have here instructions on learning how to adapt to a setting and situation that is is in exile without giving away our essential relationship with God. These are God's orders for aliens that include his powerful promise, but it has conditions as they always do. And so we're going to see four instructions on how to relate to God when relating to God has all kinds of hardships and distractions in the way. Because most of us like to think, and certainly Israel thought, there's no way God is going to send us into exile. There's no way God is going to allow hardships to come our way. And they tried him and tried him over the years. Surely a Good God would never, ever allow his people to go into a setting or situation of hardship. Surely not. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiachin and the queen mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. And by the way, there were still people chirping in Jerusalem, we're not going into exile to Babylon. While people were being dragged out of the city and taken to Babylon, we're not going in, don't worry, God will never let us go into exile. He entrusted the letter to Elassus, son of Shaphan, and to Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of this city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. 
Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I've banished you, declares the Lord, and, you, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. This is the word of God. Surely God would not take his people into exile. And then we read this stunning verse. This, verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, if we climb inside of their emotion, emotional state at this moment as they're exiled into Babylon and wondering what in the world is going on, how could God let this foreign, evil nation take us away? They're confronted with an incredible verse. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If they were wondering, has our God lost his power? Is he unable to help us when we're outside of Israel? No, he declares himself once again, I am the Lord Almighty. Nebuchadnezzar is not stronger than me. Babylon is not stronger than me. There's no nation stronger than our God. Well, maybe he's not our God anymore. No, no, he calls himself the God of Israel. No, no, you're my people. I'm your God. We have a personal thing going on. Well, it was you, providentially, who placed us from Jerusalem to Babylon. And now they hear these instructions. Settle down. Make a life for yourself. Settle down where God plops you. Because he has plans for you. He's in charge. To them, this is outrageous. For a Canadian audience sitting here in 2022, these words don't mean as much as they would have meant to them from Jerusalem to Babylon. Surely not, God. Yerushalayim, the foundation of peace, you're taking us from the foundation of peace to Babylon, the, the center of confusion, that's what, ba it's Babel, it literally says Babel there. The center of confusion, you're taking us, God, you're taking your people from the foundation of peace to the center of confusion, to the place of the first globalist conference. That's what you're doing. Genesis 11, in case you are unaware. The first gathering of a globalist plan. Yeah, that's right. Not only that, he says, I, I want you to totally settle down. I want you to live out normal life cycles. I want you to celebrate great events of weddings and, 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 and 
family things. I want you to make a living. I want you to have a career. It's all there in the text. Marry, marry and have sons and daughters. Have families. Move forward, increase in number. Do not decrease. Move forward, advance, grow. Don't pause. Don't put your life on hold. Live your life to the fullest in exile. Wow, live saved in Babylon. Now, their situation was absolutely God's doing. He had placed them there. Our situation is God's doing. It says in the um, front of the letter of Jeremiah again, prophecy that in chapter 2, verse 11, has a nation ever changed its gods? And then parenthetically it says, yet they are not gods at all. And of course the nation's gods are not gods. But my people have exchanged, here's the outrage for God, right? Their outrage is that they're in Babylon from the foundation of peace to the center of confusion. Here's God's outrage. Yet my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns. They've switched gods who does that God is saying to them not even the pagan nations around you have done that they keep their gods you've exchanged me for their gods beloved we have systematically watched Canada exchange the God of the universe for the gods of materialism secularism relativism post-truth Decades, not, not so many decades ago, 70% of this country would have been found in church today. We're not even filling up evangelical churches now. Because we've switched gods. Now note, um, God is calling here for a temporary submission to exilic circumstances. And that is considered submission to God's work because God has called it. There are limitations, of course. Any orders that would oppose the commands of God. Keep in mind that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were contemporaries. There are limitations. But in general, is not God calling them to settle down and submit to the situation they're in? Make the best of it? We should really spend more of our time seeking spiritual answers than we do, I think. What is God doing? Why is God doing this? How is God... How am I involved in the work of God? Verse 1, 
we get the contrast. To the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Wait a minute, I thought you just said God carried them into. Now that's what God's word says. I carried them into exile. And now the text says Nebuchadnezzar carried them into exile. Who carried them into exile? Both. This is a phenomenal example, a perfect example of, of divine sovereignty and human responsibility and accountability coming together. One of the great sermons of all time, of course, is found in Acts chapter 2 where Peter is describing the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to help us understand the nature of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humans and accountability of humans. Peter, write, Peter states this in his sermon. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over, listen, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So who put Jesus on the cross? God or man? Both. It's a mystery to us to try and fathom and understand, but how God can hold people responsible and accountable for his purposes. But he does. So what are they, to, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to pray for the prosperity of the people among whom God has put them. Your enemies. God's instruments. Pray for the shalom. Look at verse 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Pray for the prosperity of those who put you in exile. Who wants to do that? Not me. How many of us have been on our knees praying for our own prime minister? Or the employer who was hard with you? We're called actually to seek the welfare of our overlords. Why? Because God can do simultaneous things. Generally, unlike us. God can at the same time be disciplining a nation like Babylon and refining his people under the hand of Babylon. And are we so unaware of what God 
could be doing with us in Canada, disciplining the nation itself while he refines a church that has been turning its back on God in this country? The enemy's never just an enemy. He's a tool to accomplish God's work in your life and a target for the grace of God through you. Let's not forget what Jesus taught us. Matthew 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not, even, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, when God says, I have plans for you, I know my plans for you, these are his plans for us. To consider what God may be doing in our life or through us if you only see yourself as a victim, and that's the problem with seeing people opposing you as your enemy, because then you declare yourself the victim. And when you declare yourself the victim, you don't do any more soul searching. You just blame the other person for everything that's going on in your life. And regularly, God allows hardships in our lives. If we haven't learned this over the last number of sermons, regularly God allows hardship in our lives because he's he loves us so much, he wants to discipline us. If we go around calling every situation that's uncomfortable and every person that's, that's not nice to us our enemy and we're just a victim of circumstances, we will never, ever do any soul searching. And we'll miss the point. They'll miss the point of why they were dragged into exile in Babylon. And let's, let's take it at face value. What God says here is if your community setting prospers, then you will prosper in it as well. And I might hasten to add, by the, by the way, let's understand that Daniel became a civil servant for the Persians. Joseph became a civil servant for the Egyptians. But each of them drew spiritual lines in the sand, and so must we. They never went against God in their service to pagan nations. Never. And let's be very clear that not all the people in a nation, say, like Russia, agree with the oppressive work of their leader. And when we take a brush and we paint everybody with the same brush, we are doing a huge disservice to the truth. Third, um, 
Notice verse 8. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. You know, whenever hardship befalls you, whether individually or as a community, there's no end of voices giving explanations. Just read Job. And you know from your own personal experience, Facebook lights up every day with explanations, information, conspiracy theories. See what the Lord says? Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. There's always a multitude of alternative voices. They had God's word, and so do we. Everything should run through God's word. Everything we hear, everything we study must go through God's word. The reason they weren't paying attention to God's word and went shopping for different voices is because they didn't like God's word. They didn't want to hear that they were in exile. And so they went around looking for voices who would tell them something different. And so do we. It's the height of idiocy to listen to the dreams of deceivers that were actually dreams that were actually given to them by the people themselves and turn away from listening to the words of truth from the living God. Beloved, we have the truth and then we have all kinds of other voices. Who are you going to listen to? God calls it people who are prophesying lies. who won't listen to his word. I saw a neat um, meme the other day on Facebook. Not everything on Facebook is bad. Just a lot. And it said this, if God calls it sin, it doesn't matter what you think. I love that. That's like my new favorite meme. I think we should get church t-shirts, Nick. <laughs> Before you even come in for counseling, let me put my t-shirt on. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I, that would be like my favorite t-shirt. I can see it coming now. Um, I've been, I was surfing some church websites, evangelical church websites. And the reason I bring this up is because People are putting words in God's mouth that he never said all over the place. And I'm watching churches start to define themselves as inclusive communities. Inclusive is code for you can have your sin and God too. That's what that means. And I'm telling you that you can't. You can't have your sin and have God too. They're deceivers, prophesying lies. 
So they said, you know what, we're ready. We're ready for a promise, Lord. Give us a promise, we want a promise now. We're ready. And God says to them, well, actually, verse 10, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. I'm not giving you a promise now. This promise is for 70 years later. When I finally completed the work I wanted to do in Babylon and the work that I wanted to do in your hearts, then, then you can have this promise. You can't just pick this promise out anytime you want and hold me to it. Lord, this is your promise. You have to give me, I want plans of prosperity. I want, I want you not to harm me. I want a future and hope. God says, no, I, I have a 70-year plan. And he says, I know. I know the plan. For I know the plans I have for you. You don't know the plans I have for you. I know the plans I have for you. Pray and seek the Lord with all of your heart. That's my plan for you. Here's the deal. If you look at this very carefully... He says, I do know the plans I have for you. Plans to, to shalom you and not to harm you and plans to give you hopeful future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your hearts. Literally, he says that this, this uh, in verse 10 where it says, fulfill my gracious promise, it's really literally his good word. I will fulfill my good word to you. And my good word to you is that I know the plans that I have for you. But my plans include Babylon, 70 years of captivity. They include you and rescue and all of that. But first of all, you must take me seriously. You've not been taking me seriously. There's two human conditions that seem to dog us, one of vain confidence and the other of despair. We're either in one or the other. We're either vain confidence or despair. God doesn't want us in either of those places. And they were scoffing at the Lord in their vain confidence, and now they're sulking because they're in exile, and God says, no, I want you to take me seriously. That's what I've always wanted. I just want you to take me seriously. I want you to listen to me. I want you to obey me. I want you to take my words seriously. I don't want you to turn to idols. I don't want you to follow other gods. I just want you to seek me with all of your heart because that's the place of health for you. I want you to call upon me. I want you to come and pray. I want you to seek me with all of your heart. You know, there's something as we wind this up that's really important to note here. And that is that God connects seeking him with all of our hearts with prayer. I never noticed that before. And as I meditated on it all week, it makes perfect sense. You see, 
Satan and the demons believe in God, yes? But they don't pray to him. So what's the distinction between us and them? Because we believe in him too. We pray. We pray. If you don't pray, it's because you don't look to God as the solution or because you don't want him as the solution. Not praying is to snub God. It's to refuse to acknowledge that he's sovereign over all things. It's to refuse to acknowledge that he has all wisdom. It's to refuse to acknowledge that he has good plans, that his good word is what we want. It's refusing to value him as, as sovereign Lord of the universe. Now, for those of you who are grown adult and you have, you have adult children, Perhaps there's no greater compliment in life than to have your adult children seek your counsel, to come to you, and to acknowledge in coming to you that, hey, Dad, you know, you've had lots of experience in life. You know a few things. I respect your position in the family. I'd like to hear your counsel on this. There's nothing like that. The opposite where your kids just ignore you and just do their thing is really an insult. Now, I'm just a human father. I come nowhere even infinitesimally close to the greatness of our God, our Heavenly Father. Now think about how God must feel when we go about our day snubbing him, ignoring his great wisdom, ignoring his stature as sovereign over the universe, ignoring the fact that he's the one who moves our lives and changes our lives and moves us around. It truly is, if you think about it, the definition of seeking God with all of your heart is to pray to him. In so doing, you acknowledge who he is and that he is sovereign God and that he is in control. We pray not so much to get things changed as to confirm who's in charge and who can change things. Prayer is our acknowledgement of God's important standing in our life. Come to me, he said then you will come to me and I will rescue you and I will bring you back to this land because I can do it. Beloved, it's time for us. We, we, we live in exile now. And where, when will this promise be fulfilled for us? When the Lord Jesus Christ returns. In the meantime, we're to settle down move our lives forward. We're to seek the prosperity of our country and our people. We're to pray for our enemies. And we're to come and seek God with all of our hearts in prayer. There's a lot of Christian activity that we can do, but seeking God with your whole heart 
is defined as prayer. Father, I confess that I've not done enough seeking of you. We've not sought you enough. We find ourselves the way we are in the situation we are because we need you to get our attention. We, we realize that. We have failed, Lord. But you have given us instruction on exile. You've given us a glorious promise. And you have a good word for us. You do know your plans. Your plans are to shalom us, give us peace, not to harm us, and to give us a hopeful future. And you will bring us back from all the nations and gather us when the Lord Jesus Christ returns for his own. But in the meantime, oh God, may your people seek you with all of their heart, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. The thing about a crisis, when we find ourselves in a crisis, is that we follow the ways of some in Israel who were seeking after deceivers or deniers or dreamers because we just don't want to deal with what God wants to deal with in our lives. Or we go the other side and fall into despair. God wants none of that for us. He doesn't want denial and he doesn't want despair. He wants us to live in exile in full trust in God. That we might live our lives in such a way that the people around us will be convinced that there is a God in heaven, that he is in charge of our lives. So live your life Go to your celebrations, raise your families, enjoy your life that God gives to you, benefit those around you, and trust him that he has good plans for you and will shalom you and has a hopeful future for you because he's promised that he has. He wants us to seek him in prayer because when we seek him in prayer, we will know how we are to act and behave in exile instead of be misbehaving that's what he's called us to. Our Father, we submit ourselves to repair that needs to be done in our lives, to fix some things that we have done improperly or misbehaviors that we have participated in. We see what you want for us, Lord, and I pray that God's people, having learned some things, We'll move forward in the days ahead. We don't know what lies before us, but we do know who carries us. We do know who's in charge. We do know that you're an intentional, purposeful God. This is not a random world accidentally happening. And we are intentionally purposed by you to be in this world for now until Christ comes to take us to himself. May our enemies come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior through our behavior, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.